We'll hear argument next in case 06-10119, Snyder versus Louisiana. Mr. Bright. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the decision here of the majority of the Louisiana Supreme Court on remand from this Court is an extraordinary departure from the lessons that this Court taught in its Millerell decisions. And I'd point out sort of three overarching errors in that regard. First, the majority looked at each of the Millerell factors, or some of them, and largely discounted them, that there were five African-Americans struck, they whittled that down to two, that there was disparate questioning, they identified that of the white jurors and Jeffrey Brooks, but they said that counted for the state, and Millerell clearly teaches that it did. Uh, they found there was no racial implication in the mention of the O.J. Simpson case from start of the case all the way through because neither O.J. Simpson's race nor Mr. Snyder's race was mentioned. Um, secondly, there were some Millerell factors that were not considered at all, not even acknowledged. For example, and one of the most powerful ones, the failure to ask any questions of Jeffrey Brooks or Elaine Scott. They gave very ambiguous general reasons for striking them. They asked no questions. In this case, you could ask anybody any question you wanted as a lawyer. And then thirdly, when they got to the point of consider them cumulatively, they had now whittled them down to where there was very little to consider. And our position is that what Justice Kimball did, the author of the original decision, who wrote the dissenting opinion, one of the two dissents here, actually did what this Court remanded this case to do, which was reconsideration in light of Millerell, because when you consider all those factors together, nothing answers the question of uh, or, or explains them as well as race. You can pick each piece out, each leaf out, and you can try to find an innocent explanation for it. But when you stand back and look at it all together, and that's why the Court missed the fact that the backstrike uh, was racially motivated uh, in this case. It just simply didn't look at these things in the context. Can I ask you about one of the factors? It's sure. hard to discuss them all at the same time. What is the relevance of uh, strikes of black lawyers that you don't argue were based on race? It's hard for me to understand why that's relevant in this calculation. Suppose there's a case where it's perfectly clear that certain strikes were not racially motivated. Let's say that the prosecution has the, the strategy of striking every lawyer who's on the panel, and it strikes every white lawyer and it strikes every black lawyer. Then what is the relevance of the fact that the black lawyers were peremptorily challenged? Well, I see. You mean the jurors happen to be lawyers and they're struck. That's right. There's a common reason. Well, if that's the case and you consider that in Millerell, that's a factor for race neutrality. The difference here is the reason given for striking Brooks, for example, is he might have a reason to go home. No, no, but you're making the argument that there were five uh, African-American jurors who were the subject of prosecutorial peremptory challenges. Yes. And, but you don't claim that three of those strikes were based on race, do you? Well, no different than Millerell. The, the court in Millerell says you look at the prima facie case because it's unlikely to happen by chance. Well, there were a large number of strikes in Millerell. This is a much smaller number. But could you just explain, if you can, what is the relevance of strikes that you do not even claim were racially motivated? Well, the, the, the difference is that, as in Millerell, it, it's unlikely to happen by happenstance. 
Uh, they struck all the blacks they could in this case. There were only five, and they struck every one of them. And the way they went about striking them and the context of all this, it doesn't say that all five of those, but that's, uh, just Alito, that's the classic Batson case where the prima facie case is strong, given the number of people struck, but you zero in on the particular jurors where doing the side-by-side comparison, the failure to ask any questions, the other factors that were identified. Well, that's right. I think that's right that you zero in on the, the ones as to which you objected. But you also want to rely on the fact that these other jurors were excluded and no objection was made to their exclusion. If an objection had been made, the state, of course, would have, could have explained, if they had a reason, a non-racial one, why they were struck. But you didn't object. And yet you want them to be considered as evincing racial bias. Well, and part of the reason they weren't struck, Mr. Chief Justice, was one of the elements of race here. The prosecution accepted the first black juror. So when the second one, Gregory Scott, is struck, it's only one out of two. There's no pattern. Then Mr. Hawkins is struck. Now it's two out of three. It was when Ms. Elaine Scott was struck that now it's three out of four. There's still one African-American. And at that point, defense counsel says there's a pattern. And I strike based on the pattern of striking African Americans. Couldn't, couldn't counsel at that point have gone back and said, ah, now I see what's going on, so I'm going to um, challenge, I'm going to interpose a bats and challenge with respect to the second and third African American. Or actually the first and second. Well, yeah, you were right, the second and third. Well, there was, that certainly could have been done. Uh, I think basically the defense was snookered here. But also there was nothing to prevent the prosecution from giving reasons. In fact, Mr. Olin, the junior prosecutor here, he starts to say, I struck Mr. Hawkins. And at that point, Williams, the senior prosecutor, said, don't say anything. Well, presumably because no objection was raised as to Mr. Hawkins. I, I mean, it's the burden is on you to object if you think jurors are being excluded on a racial basis. Well, but the only thing we're putting the pattern forward for is it's step three of Batson, where both Millerell decisions make it quite clear that if the numbers are such that it's unlikely to happen by happenstance, that's one element. It's not that all five necessarily were, were struck on the basis of race, but it is the fact that that unlikely event, that five out of five were struck, informs that decision in Batson saying looking at all relevant facts. It doesn't exclude. I've seen Batson challenges where a lawyer will say, well, with regards to five and six, then we think those are particularly strong, not with regard to others. Millerell did that. He only challenged seven on direct appeal, only challenged six on the habeas corpus case that ultimately made its way to this court, and this court only found with regard to two. Out of how many who were struck? Ten. So he only challenged seven of those on, on direct appeal, six in habeas corpus, and this court only found jurors fields and juror warden. Uh, that's basically, we're here saying he struck five out of five, all that he possibly could have, and juror Brooks, if you look at all the Millerell factors with regard to Jeffrey Brooks, just two general uh, reasons that probably applied to everybody there. He was nervous. I expect every citizen called out of their home or out of their work to... The district be- judge is in a much better position to decide those matters, such as, uh, you know, uh, he, his, his, his response was, was slow on, on the question of, uh, you know, whether he could consider the death penalty. I can't tell that from a cold record, and that's why we re- re- rely upon the trial judge. Well, that was with regard to Ms. Scott. Right. And Justice, Justice Scalia... Uh, there, only one juror here was ambivalent about the death penalty, said she wasn't sure. 
She's cross-examined for four or five pages, Ms. Callaghan, four or five pages of transcript. Twenty-three, twenty-one, I'm sorry, jurors are asked if they're opposed to the death penalty and, and answer the question yes, twenty-one. Every single one is asked at least two, and some are asked more questions. The only person not asked any questions is Elaine Scott. She first says, could you impose the death penalty? I think I could. Then she says later, I could. If you look at the three jurors right before her, Ms. Du Bois, I could consider it. Ms. Saracone, I could consider it. Mr. Salito, I could consider it. Ms. Ms. Uh, Scott, I could. They all give the same answer. Two of those people, Justice Scalia, end up on the jury in this case. Well, They're looking at the joint appendix on page 360, it, as I read it, it's Ms. Scott uh, gives an answer that, that can't be heard, right? Right. The first Mr. time. Mr. Pond says, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. I mean, we don't know, since we weren't there, if it was kind of, you know, I think I could, and then I think I could. I mean, you know, it's an atmospheric determination by the, the district court judge. And as, as has been pointed out, all we have is the cold transcript. Well, then just a couple of pages later, Mr. Chief Justice, she says I could. She gives the same answer that the three That's on, on Joint Appendix, page 401. That's on, yes. Uh, and, and the problem with that, of course, is it's, it's uh, that's, uh, I'm sorry, 367. 367. She says I think I could at 361. And well, then just a few pages later, they go each juror, and she says, I could. Well, but it, it, the question is not, could you consider the death penalty? It says, could you consider both? And they're going through several of the juries. Well, the, the jurors. And uh, I thought that was the point was made by your, your friend on the other side, that it was ambiguous to what option she was saying she could consider. Well, I'd invite the Court to look at that, because what that starts out with is a question about life. Could you consider a life imprisonment? And then when Ms. Goff has answered, she says, the death penalty, could I consider it? Yes, I could consider it. And then everybody says they could consider it. Now, the Louisiana Supreme Court treated this as her saying, I could consider the death penalty. That's what they said. But here's the other point with Ms. Scott. It only took one question. Ms. Scott, what did you mean when you said, I think you could? I mean, that was in, in uh, Millerell, in uh, opinion in Millerell, too, the fact that Fields wasn't asked any questions about the position of the death penalty. He'd express some. But if the prosecutor is... Well, these are peremptory challenges. And are, it seems to me if you have one, one uh, juror who says, I, th- I think I could, and another one who said, I could, I'm going to strike the one who said, I think I could. But, but, Justice Scalia, there's no reason you wouldn't ask them what they meant. And that's what the prosecutors did with all the white jurors here. Every single one. It's only Ms. Scott, Elaine Scott, that there's no questions asked about the reasons they gave for striking her. So they had the opportunity to ask her what she meant. And they asked all 21 of the white jurors. They asked the uh, Ms. Culkin. Did, did, did all 21 say, I think I could? No. All 21 said no. And then the prosecution asked them follow-up questions about what their beliefs were. So in those situations, the prosecutor's asking questions to be sure and to clarify their position on the death penalty. Ms. Callaghan is the only one who says, well, I'm not sure. So they asked Ms. Callaghan a number of questions. How long have you thought about it? What do you think? All those sorts of things. Ultimately, it's pretty clear Ms. Callaghan is opposed to the death penalty. Mr. Brett, you but, make some, some good arguments about comparisons between white jurors and black jurors. Yes. What do we do with the comparisons that you're making now to white jurors who were never brought to the attention of the Louisiana Supreme Court? 
Well, I, I think Millerell again answers that because the, the entire voir dire was before the Louisiana Supreme Court. On remand from this court, uh, the arguments were made about the uh, disparate questioning uh, of jurors, uh, and also with Jeffrey Brooks, where that's also very clear, because the reason given for striking uh, Jeffrey Book, uh, Brooks is that he would have a reason to want to go home early. My experience is most jurors taken out of their homes and out of their work would like to finish their job and go home early. And I think you have a good argument uh, in comparing him to some of the white jurors, in particular Mr. Laws. But right. my understanding is you never relied on Mr. Laws before the Louisiana Supreme Court. Is that correct? Not Mr. Laws specifically, but you can look at the other people that are mentioned in Justice Kimball's dissent. Mr. Yeager had something coming up on Sunday. He, he wanted to get home for that. Uh, Brandon Burns. The arguments as to each of them is, are different. The argument as to Mr. Yeager, I think, is much weaker. He had one event on a Sunday, and he was told, you don't have to worry about that. This case is going to be over by Sunday. Well, so that's quite different from somebody uh, it's, it could be quite different from someone like Mr. Brooks or Mr. Laws. Isn't well, that right? Actually, the reason they say they're concerned about Mr. Brooks because he was told, your dean says it won't be a problem. And he says, okay. It's no further expression of worry by him. There is by the other jurors that were accepted. They all say on the record, I need to get back to my job, to my family. Mr. Burns got single-parent teenagers, 89-year-old grandparents that he wants to get back to. All of those people accepted by the state. Uh, and Justice Kimball deals with some of those in her dissenting opinion, and they're briefed up to the Louisiana Supreme Court on remand from this case. But I believe Miller L3. I don't two, understand how, how, how the dean could resolve his problem. Well, he's he, the dean. <laughs> the man's problem, what he's worried about, is that he has to put in a certain number of hours of teaching. And uh, what was it, a couple of months before the end of the term? And it was going to be No, very, this was in August. This was right before yeah. the Labor Day weekend in August. The term went all the way to December, Justice Scalia. And he, at this point, Brooks, was just observing someone else teach. I mean, he wasn't teaching himself. Whatever. He had to be there to observe. He had to put in a certain number of hours. How could the dean uh, say, oh, don't worry, it's no problem? Well, the I dean... Mean, the, the, the hours requirement is, is a requirement for the degree. I don't think deans have the ability to, uh, uh, to waive degree requirements. Well, with, with all due respect... Maybe uh, the dean was just saying, oh, he'll be able to do it. And, and well, that, that wouldn't inspire a great deal of confidence in me, even well, if I said, okay. Well, again, it would have only taken one question. One question. Mr. Brooks, now that you've heard that your dean said it won't be a problem, do you have further concerns about wanting to get home quickly? Uh, a Mr. lot of Brooks, my reaction would be, would, would depend upon how he said, okay. And if I were sitting there as the trial judge, I, I could discern whether okay meant, well, you know, that's what he says, but I'm still going to have a hard time digging out those hours for the remaining time that I have in the term. Uh, yeah, I don't he, know how he said if okay. You're, if, if I could just answer that question, Mr. Chief Justice, if you're the lawyer standing there beside him and he says what you just said, then you ask him one question. But there's a professor, Sandra's. He's not watching class. He's teaching class at the start of the semester at the University of New Orleans. 
And he doesn't. It's no speculation. With Brooks, it's all speculation. Well, with, with Sanders. With Brooks, what, the, what he said when he said, I'm missing right now something that will better me towards my teaching career, and they say, and the judge says, is there anybody we could speak to? And he said, I've already talked to the dean. Um, and so based on his initial conversation with the dean, he was still worried. Well, and the judge calls the dean, and, of course, I mean, the dean's going to no say. No problem. Yeah, no problem. Well, that's what he's going to say to the judge. When Brooks talked to him, apparently there was a problem because his concern remained after having talked to the dean. Brooks doesn't say there's a problem. He gives the, the — uh, He says, I'm missing right now something, something that will that better be me towards my teaching career. Sure. Every — the judge had given this uh, hardship question. We're going to sequester the jury. You're not going to be allowed to communicate with anybody. Uh, you're going to have to stay out of the travel lodge while this case is going on. Of course, he doesn't say at that point how long it's going to be. And 40, 44 people come forward. But all — but with most of those people, like with Brandon Burns — who's got to get back to his landscaping business, Mr. Laws, who's got to get back to two homes he's filling, his wife recovering from surgery and taking his children to school every day. All those people are insured. This case is going to be over by Saturday. It's not going to go very long. This argument that they were worried that the jury might be out for a long time, this is one of the most profound. I don't understand your answer that Mr. Brooks did not say there was a problem. He says, I've already missed half a day. Uh, there's something I'm missing right now that will better me towards my teaching career. He says, I've already talked to the dean. How can you say he isn't identifying a problem? Well, he, he's saying, again, not knowing how long this is going to last or what's going to be expected of him, right now I'm missing something that help my education. Everybody's missing something that's going to help them in their job, uh, with their families or whatever. But once the judge calls him back up to the bench and said, we've talked to the dean, so it's not going to be a problem for you to be here. Uh, most students I know, I've had, I know a lot of you have had experience with students, uh, once they're assured by the dean that it's not going to be a problem, um, it's not going to be a problem. Even if the assurance is only secondhand, right? Well, I think uh, when the you judge... the dean says it's okay, that's all right. The judge of the court, the presiding uh, judicial officer there, says we've talked to your dean, and it's not going to be a problem says it's okay. for to be here this week. And everybody's told, this week we're going to try this case. It's Labor Day weekend coming up. We know you send a jury out on Friday afternoon. You're not going to wait too long for that verdict, probably. Uh, and everybody is told, you're going to be out of here by Saturday, Mr. Yeager. You're going to be out of here by Sunday. Uh, so we're talking really about Mr. Brooks uh, missing uh, three more days. Uh, this is on uh, Tuesday. This case is over uh, on Friday. Uh, and everybody knew that it was going to be over on Friday because they told jurors over and over and over again that it was going to be over by Friday, so or Saturday at the latest. So I, I would say, again, no questions asked. The, the lawyers had an opportunity right there when they told him, the dean says it's not a problem. Then later he's called in panel one. You can ask, you see this voir dire, it's very interesting, it's very short, but the lawyers could ask individual questions to any juror out there in the panel. Mr. Brooks, do you have any concern that you won't be able to concentrate because uh, you, you need to get back to school? They asked that question over and over, as we point out in our brief, of white jurors. In fact, the Louisiana Supreme Court, and what I think is one of its great legal errors here. Well, suppose you're trying it, this case, you're a defense attorney, and you ask a juror potential juror, uh, would you hold it against a defendant who doesn't take the stand? And the initial answer is, um, I have to think about that. Um, 
I'm not quite sure. Now, then you go on and you ask a lot of questions and the, the juror comes around to saying, I understand that's a person's constitutional right. They get the advice from a lawyer. A lawyer doesn't necessarily mean the person has something to hide, et cetera, et cetera. Um, do the, does that additional questioning allay the concern that you would have had at the beginning about the, the fairness, the potential fairness of the juror? Well, I think uh, you have to look not only at those answers, but, but what the court in Miller L. 2 said were the side-by-side comparisons. If you're asking the white jurors follow-up questions to determine that, then that, I think, cuts very much against the prosecution and supports an inference of, of racial discrimination. If you basically ask everybody about the same thing, you can't draw that inference. But the Louisiana Supreme Court said here there was consistent questioning of the jurors about whether whatever their other obligations were, it would interfere with their ability to sit as jurors. There's consistent questioning of everybody except Jeffrey Brooks. And that's the one African-American who the court, who the prosecutors then say they're striking for that reason. Mr. Bright, that, the, the, the judge was quite passive. Uh, was, was the judge, in fact, present throughout the entire voir dire? I, I, I think the judge was present, but he was quite passive. One of the more remarkable aspects of this jury selection is when he grants a defense uh, strike for cause, the prosecutor, Mr. Williams, says, are you crazy? And the judge says, no, and they go right on to the next thing. You know, I've practiced law for 30 years. Sounds like the right answer to me. Uh, (laughs) Was it the right question? Uh, I've often wondered about that, but I've never articulated it. and, and I think most lawyers wouldn't. Uh, there's another point where Williams tells the judge, swear all these people to say they've got a valid reason for leaving and send them all out of here. Swearing people to say something that may be true, may not be true. And the judge says, well, do I do it individually or do I do it in a group? He says, do it in a group. Just have them all swear that they've got a legal reason, a hardship reason to be excused. And the judge goes right along with it. I think what we see with a judge in every ruling here is... Four or five words, I'm going to allow it. I'm going to allow it. The judge not engaged in questioning. Unlike uh, Utech versus Brown, that Justice Kennedy wrote about last term, where you've got a judge uh, involved and hearing the lawyers and whatever, that's not present here. Uh, so uh, I, I think that when you look at that factor, you don't have assurance that this judge was involved in a way to make sure that uh, the credibility determinations which are being made, the other point I would make, is here, he's ruling on the Batson strikes as the jury is being selected. So he doesn't have all the information. Now, he does rule again on the motion for new trial. That's the only time that all the information, all the relevant information, uh, is before the judge. But there again, all he says is, I think the prosecutor's reasons were race neutral. Uh, no indication that he went beyond that to consider what Batson said we, and what Millerell says we have to consider, which is all the relevant factors. Mr. Bright, may I ask, uh, in, in your judgment, was all the reference to O.J. Simpson relevant at all to what's before us? I think it is, Justice Stevens, and I think even if you don't look at the closing argument, which tells you two important things, first of all, the prosecutor broke his promise to the judge that he wouldn't mention it. As He said, as an officer of the court, I will not What does that have to do with anything? That has to do with... So he uh, broke his promise. I mean, sue him or something, but I don't see how it has anything to do with whether a fair jury was... Uh, was it, it has to do with his credibility, which is uh, very much what... Uh, 
uh, Batson is about. But, but to the O.J. Simpson case, I, I think the prosecutor's obsession with O.J. Simpson, a month before, he mentions in a pretrial hearing, the defense moves to ask, quit referring to the O.J. Simpson case in the media, and for goodness sakes, Judge, don't let him refer to it before the jury. And the, the defense makes quite clearly. The polls show that the society is divided. This was 10 months ago that Simpson came down. It's a very polarizing case. The fact that he's mentioning it is going to inject racial prejudice into this case. What about the explanation that was given that this was referring to the defendant's feigning uh, emotional distress uh, rather than anything to do with race? Well, I think, Chief Justice Roberts, it it doesn't have anything to do uh, with that. What, uh, does, what doesn't have anything to do with it? The, the fact of whether or not Mr. Snyder was, in fact, suicidal is not rebutted in any way by bringing in the most racially polarizing case in the country uh, and saying that Simpson was trying to get away with it. Well, it's that, not just racially polarizing. I mean, maybe it is that, but it's also a case in which a man killed his wife with a knife. Yes. Same as here. Well, there are a lot of similarities. And then uh, uh, feigned uh, uh, mental illness uh, by his, his great escape uh, escapade. And that is, that is what the prosecutor said he was trying to bring before the jury. Well, and he said Simpson got away with it. Snyder couldn't have possibly known that because the verdict in, in Simpson didn't come down until after Snyder's crime had been committed. So he couldn't have been imitating, if that's what he was arguing, he couldn't have been imitating O.J. Simpson. I, I think what this prosecutor learned from O.J. Simpson, Justice Stevens, uh, is that you don't let blacks on the jury. I mean, I think he saw that this racially mixed jury in Los Angeles let him, quote, get away with it, and we're going to have an all-white jury here in Jefferson pa- Parish, Louisiana, and unlike what happened out there, we're not going to let — of course, this was at the penalty phase. He could only get life without parole or the death penalty. He wasn't going to get away with anything. But that was the way it was pictured to the jury, that if they didn't give him the death penalty, So uh, your relief you're requesting goes only to the penalty and not to the conviction? No, Chief Justice Roberts, this is in striking the jury, and there's no uh, prejudice requirement with race. Alan Snyder's entitled to a new trial with a fair jury that represents the community. So I think — Even though though your theory is that it was only with respect to the penalty that the — you you have no allegation that this jury uh, did not return a valid — Conviction. I thought your objection was uh, with respect to the death penalty. Oh no! Let me let me make this quite clear. Our objection is that when the jury was selected, in terms of the disparate questioning, disparate acceptance, failure to ask any questions, racial prejudice infected the selection of the jury. All the O.J. Simpson case does is put a icing on the cake. But if you look at the Miller L. factors and you consider them cumulatively, uh, like Justice uh, Kimball did in her dissent. Uh, you come away once again with, the, with what the Court said in Millerell. The evidence is too powerful. It all points in one direction, and that's intentional race discrimination. And that was in the jury. And if that happened, Alan Snyder is entitled to a new trial. If I could, I'd reserve the rest of my time. Thank, Thank you, me. Mr. Bright. Mr. Boudreaux. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I had some prepared remarks to begin with, but I think I'd like to go straight into responding to some of the concerns that have just been raised. First of all, concerning Elaine Scott, the lady who said, I think I could. 
I think the record is quite clear that she was being asked about considering life imprisonment. Beginning at 364 of the Joint Appendix, the question is asked by the prosecutor four times. Could you consider a sentence of life imprisonment? Could you consider the possibility of life imprisonment? Could you consider life imprisonment? It's whether you could consider life imprisonment. You get to Ms. Scott, the answer is I could. She's the lady who said originally, I think I could. So the prosecutor said — As to life imprisonment or as to the death penalty? As to life imprisonment, Your Honor. As to death, she said, I think I could. When it got to life imprisonment, the question asked four times, among various going down the list, is when she said — where is this? I, uh, 364, I uh, showed Beginning at 364 of the Joint Appendix, Your Honor. The, I just wanted to point out the question posed is regarding life imprisonment. Right. She was originally asked the question about death, the death penalty, and her response was the, I think I could. Mr. Bright contrasts that with the more probing inquiry with respect to white jurors who said, I think I could. And here there was no follow-up. That's true, Your Honor. In, in reviewing this record, there are instances where, where there were not a lot of follow-up questions. Um, we see the situation with Mr. Brooks. Um, this jury, unlike the jury in Millerell, which took five weeks, this jury took, to, took less than a day and a half to pick. So there were not a lot of probing questions. The explanation for Mr. Brooks is not terribly convincing on its face. This is an, was an incredibly short trial, was it not? Mr. Brooks is voir on Tuesday. And there's a death verdict on Friday. Yes, sir. And the concern, the major concern about him is that he's going to worry about missing Wednesday, Thursday, Friday student teaching? Yes, sir. The concern and that he's going to miss him to some of the, the white jurors, particularly I think Mr. Laws. Mr. Laws seemed to have a more compelling reason to be worried about not being, uh, about, about being in court. He, he was a contractor. He had houses he had to finish. Uh, his wife had, had recently had surgery. He was taking the kids back and forth to school. Yes, sir. Um, Mr. Laws, like Mr. Brooks, and I think it's important to point out, approached the bench of his own volition. Other, other individuals waited until they were, if they were called and were questioned. The way the proceedings began, when the Venari was summoned into the courtroom, the judge introduced his staff, read the statutory requirements for jury service, and then they started lining up and one of the people lining up to express his concern, not just about meeting the requirements to be a juror, was, I've got class. I've got, and, and I think it's, But you said little, Mr. Laws was an identical, he came up too, he said, John, he did, he did come up, and I think the distinction there, Your Honor, is that like several of the others, unlike Mr. Brooks, in the end, he said, I can make arrangements. I can I deal with Can I go back to Mrs. Scott? I'm sorry? Could I go back to Mrs. Scott? Mrs. Scott? Yes. If you look at the top of 367, and then you look over at 366, the format, I think, is that the prosecutor is posing a general question. And then he poses his question, or she, and goes around and gets an answer. I don't know it's Mr. Olindy. So they start out with the death penalty. Then he asks some ambiguous thing at the bottom of 366. Then the prosecutor says, Mrs. Alvarez, Mrs. Alvarez, you said you could not impose the death penalty. Mrs. Goff, Mrs. Goff, I could consider the death penalty. Ms. DuPont, I couldn't hear. Prosecutor, you could consider both? Yes, I would consider it. Ms. Du Bois, I could consider it. Yes. Ms. Sartioni, I could consider it. Mrs. Salino, I could consider it. Ms. Scott, I could. I could. Now, that doesn't seem too ambiguous for me, to me. 
it seems that what they're talking about, each of them, is the death penalty, because that's what, by the time they got to the top of 367, they were talking about. Maybe there's ambiguity there. But I, I, I haven't noticed in anybody's opinion so far making that point that you just made. I would submit that that, that that would indicate ambiguity, Your Honor. The prosecutor starts off with the life imprisonment question, and then it's it's sort of morphed into a death penalty. But by the time you get back to Ms. Scott, yeah. I think — Oh, well, the last — I just read you what it was, so I guess people make up their own mind about that. But by what, what I don't think is uh, you can make up your own mind is ambiguous is when this prosecutor met with an answer that he considered not uh, call it strictly kosher, when he found that, like Mrs. Callaghan, she said, I'm not sure. That's more ambiguous than Mrs. Scott. And then it goes on for three pages of additional questions. And then 26 pages later, he doesn't excuse her yet. And he doesn't excuse her until she volunteers. I could give a ver- verdict. I don't think I could give a verdict to take someone's life. And it's that point that the prosecutor excuses her. Now, compare that to Ms. Scott, who started out saying, I think I could, and then, as I read it, said I could. Now, that's the kind of comparison here. No follow-up. At the worst, minor ambiguity. Yes, sir. Slight hesitation. Now, what do you say to that? One of the weaknesses in some of these jurors is is a lack of follow-up questions. But I think we go back to her original comment, which was so softly spoken that the defense attorney said, I can't hear you. There's nothing. So that, of course, is a problem I have generally in this area. We can always imagine that things that are not in the transcript, perhaps what she said spokenly not in the transcript, is I hate the death penalty. I'll never, I'll never discard, apply it under any circumstances. And I grant you, if that's the law, we are never going to find that there's any prejudice. But, but I just don't see how that could be the law. In the totality of her responses, the ones that were heard, which are on the record, and the ones which were not heard, which are not on the record, the prosecutor felt that she was weak on the death penalty. And that, on its face, is a race-neutral reason. Well, of course — oh, sorry. Well, I would just say that the — we're talking here with the prosecutor's perception of the juror based on her answers and the trial court's perception in evaluating the prosecutor's proffered race-neutral reasons. Could someone look at this and say it's, it's to the contrary? Yes. Um, but in the, in the totality of the circumstances and the reviewing for clear error, with the benefit, of course, that the trial court has in being present, hearing or not hearing, what was said, the, the tone of voice, the demeanor, the mannerisms, the deference. Well, there, there, there isn't much reason, is there, to think that the trial court was being very critical of the prosecutor's answers. Uh, my recollection uh, is that after the O.J. Simpson remark had been made in final argument, uh, that the, the ultimate resolution of that uh, involved the, the trial judge saying that one reason that was not a racially significant remark uh, was that the prosecutor had neither had mentioned neither the race of the defendant nor the race of O.J. Simpson. Now, that is not a critical mind at work, is it? <laughs> I would, I would uh, suppose not, Your Honor. And, and um, because — The objection was — And because you suppose not, and, and I certainly suppose not, uh, the, the, the fact is that we have to, we have to consider the O.J. Simpson remark 
in trying to evaluate what went on, in trying to evaluate, for example, uh, the, the, the lack of critical follow-up uh, in, in, a, in a disparate way by the prosecutor. Uh, and, and that, in fact, is, is a fair and potent argument that the other side has, isn't yes. it? Yes, Your Honor. I would like to respond to that by pointing out, though, that the reference to the O.J. Simpson case was based on the factual similarities involving the O.J. Simpson case and this case. Do you believe that if there had been a white defendant here, the O.J. Simpson case would have been mentioned? Yes, Your Honor, and I believe if the O.J. Simpson See, case — See, candid, I will be candid to say to you, under the, under the circumstances of the record in front of us, I find that highly unlikely. And because I find the, that highly unlikely, uh, I put significance in the O.J. Simpson remark, uh, which, which even you concede is significant. Yes, Your Honor, but I think the, the reason it doesn't fatally infect the proceedings with racism is I think the comment perhaps would have been made had O.J. Simpson not been white. I think perhaps the comment would have been made had it not been O.J. Simpson, but some other high-profile white athlete celebrity. And I think it's appropriate, putting aside for the moment his assurance to the Court that he wouldn't mention it, but it was in response to the defense counsel's argument Remember, this defendant was tried on a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. The murders are committed several hours later. He's barricaded in his house, calls the police, claiming to be suicidal. The police respond. He gets up, unbarricades the door, lets the police in. Then he goes back into his fetal position. To rebut the, this, this perhaps he's thinking, and, and, and I think it's significant, Defense Exhibit 2 at trial was the defendant's statement taken several hours later. He's oriented. He's aware of the situation. He knew he had done something wrong was in tr- and was in trouble. Mr. Boudreau, even if, even if you're correct that a neutral explanation was given, focusing on the emotional distress, uh, are you, you, do you think the prosecutor would have made the analogy if there had been a, a black juror on the jury? I think he would have, Your Honor. I know the contention is that he didn't, but I think the facts are such on this record that it was not an appeal to race, but it was an appeal to what was a historical fact, common knowledge among most people in the country, and the facts of this case. The defendant's statement, as I said, would betray no um, mental lack of wherewithal. When the search warrant was executed, his bloody shirt was found in the attic of his house. That's at page 1,311 of the record. It's not in the, um, it's not in the joint appendix. But when the defense attorney brings up the police coming to the house, and he, and, and, and he agreed that the police officer's testimony was correct, he's in a fetal position, he's saying, they're coming to get me, I'm suicidal, the defense attorney is bringing up the mental aspect of this case. So I think it was appropriate for the prosecutor to look at the record and, and, and to rebut that. But well, before, do you believe- before, before the rebuttal, the, this prosecutor was going around advertising this as his O.J. Simpson case, and the defense attorney said, please, judge, get him to stop saying that. This is long before you're painting a picture of someone who is answering uh, an argument made by the defense. But this prosecutor initiated it, and the defense attorney was reactive. She said, Judge, he's talking in this county and that county, but this is his O.J. case. Stop him from doing that. That's correct, Your Honor. Then he says, I'm an officer of the court, and I'm giving you my word. That's correct. And then he believes, 
despite his assurances that when the defense attorney made the argument they made, they were inviting that, that, that response. Well, do you, do you believe that it would have been appropriate at that point for the prosecutor uh, to invoke in his argument any case from any state uh, in which uh, a criminal defendant had unsuccessfully feigned insanity as a reason to decide, uh, for the jurors to decide that this defendant is, is feigning insanity? I think any historical fact well known to people uh, was, would have been fair game, just, just as an analogy. Remember this situation. The jury's instructed, argument of counsel is not evidence. Take it for what, what you think it's, it's worth. This was the historical reference this prosecutor used. The facts are similar. Contrast that with the, or, or kind of almost similar to that when we're talking about racism being part of these proceedings. One of the amicus briefs refers to David Duke. If your honors are not aware, in New Orleans, Louisiana, for a number of years, David Duke's high-profile Ku Klux Klan. In, in some of the voir dire in this case, at page 221, 222 of the Joint Appendix, it's defense counsel who brings up David Duke. Now, you understand, if David Duke was on trial here today, and we had a photo album of him in his robes, he would still be entitled to a fair trial. So she's using a, a exactly. entitled yep. to a fair trial without prejudice. Right. So I think you have two instances here. One is Mrs. Scott, and the other is Mr. Brooke. Mm-hmm. And in respect to Mr. Brooke, what I've read in the transcript is that he was nervous and unhappy because he's learning to be a teacher, and he's afraid he's going to miss some student teaching time, which will count against him. Yes, sir. So what it says is the clerk called the dean, and the dean said it won't. Don't worry about it, which Mr. Brooke is then told. He's challenged for that reason. Mm-hmm. He might still worry about it. Mm-hmm. But Mr. Lawless is not. Now, Mr. Lawless is a self-employed contractor who announced to the court I have a big problem this weekend. Two houses are near completion. The owners are supposed to be moving in. My wife has just had a hysterectomy. She's supposed to be taking care of the children back home. And uh, she has nobody to help. Okay. He's not challenged. So we're not worried about Mr. Laws, worried about his wife and his business, which going down, you know, serious. But we are worried about Mr. Brooke, who has been told by the dean, you have no problem. That's a little bit of a problem to me. Yes, Your Honor. If you add them up, we have Mrs. Uh, Scott, we have Mr. Brooke, we have the mention of, and three others, three others, the only other three black people are challenged off, and we have uh, uh, the uh, uh, no black jurors on, and we have the references to O.J. Simpson beside. All right, so now, there you are. Your, your factual case against characterizations are, are, are correct, Your Honor. I won't dispute the factual allegations, but the key thing I would think to point out there is Mr. Laws said he could make arrangements. It's difficult. It's, it's the jury duty What's happens. What's the difference between that and okay? I'm sorry? One says I can make arrangements, and the other one is more economical, and he says okay. But that, he said, I think that's the landscape, man. He said, as long as it wasn't a prolonged. No, she means no. the dean. The dean oh, the said, dean. no sorry. problem at all. What no, I, I mean, do you I mean want? Brooks. Brooks says, Brooks okay. Says, okay. Right. The, the difference the between difference. I can make arrangements and okay. The, difference, the difference there, Your Honor, is that Mr. Brooks needs to make these classroom undergraduate requirements to graduate. There's a day that's going to come when he's either made his requirements to graduate or he has not. The people with the jobs, the contractors, 
Their jobs were there when they got when they when they got out of the, when they got out of court when the trial was over. If Mr. Brooks didn't meet his uh, requirements, he was not going to graduate. And I would be a little careful to take it at face value from the judge's law clerk, Colin, the dean, who because she then comes back and says it's a 300-hour observation. That's obviously wrong, Mr. Well, Brooks. I wouldn't take it at face value if there had been a further question asked of Mr. Brooks, uh, saying, um, are, "Are you really satisfied that you've got nothing to worry about?" And he said, "Well, gee, boy." I you sure hope I, 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 I'm, I'm able to make that requirement. But nobody asked that question. Nobody asked that question. All we've got is okay That's on the one hand, and I can make arrangements on the other. But we also have, Your Honor, as far as Mr. Brooks is concerned, factors not articulated by the prosecutor, but which would be supported by the record. He's, he was going to be an education uh, a teacher. He's young. Prosecutors in a death penalty case, I think, perhaps would shy away from asking or leaving on a jury a young person, a teacher, maybe perhaps more sympathetic, maybe more understanding. Uh, nothing wrong with that, but maybe that's not who the uh, a prosecutor seeking a death penalty wants on the jury. We have to, we have to go. You, you, uh, this is enough of a, of a fact-specific inquiry for any appellate court, even when we go into the allegations that the prosecution did make. Now, you're saying we also have to imagine other reasons, which he didn't state, were the reasons why he struck, but which might have been. You really think that that's enough to? That's a problem with this record. Uh, not a problem. As the it, case it, says, it, it's your problem with the record. The, the, it's not, it's the, not the, mine. The plausibility of the prosecutor's uh, reasons stand or fall on what he says. The other things, perhaps, the court will say, he didn't say that. We're not going to consider him. Um, but talking about a fact, factual specific inquiry before an appellate court, that brings us back to the to the discretion afforded the um, not the discretion the deference afforded the trial court who's present for the proceedings who 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 is there uh, passive or otherwise he's there he sees what's going on the Mr. demeanor Gross, things like can that. I ask you about the the juror Hawkins you haven't talked much about him why did Hawkins? they strike him he seemed to me to be a pretty good juror for the prosecution you know that's a question I've asked myself and I, and I can't. I'm not sure. You would think on the surface of it he would have been a good juror for the state. But I think what's equally clear is that the defense would objected to his being excused but didn't make a Batson claim because I don't think they wanted to go there. They would not have wanted that juror on their jury. Well, he said he had plenty friends. Wasn't he struck before they backstruck the first uh, black on the, on the jury? Uh, I believe so, Your Honor. So that probably explains why they didn't make a Batson objection. Yes, you're correct about that. But I think he would not the juror, the, the, the defense perhaps would have struck him. He testified that he had plenty of friends who were police officers in this jurisdiction. I can understand why the defense would have struck him. But I, and, I can't understand why the prosecutor would. Well, we don't know that, Your Honor, because there was no Batson objection raised and the prosecutor was not called upon to articulate any reasons. On the face of it, he looks like he could be a good juror. But that's a factual matter that the trial prosecutor then and there made that decision. And I think if you knew nothing about that juror except what Justice Stevens and you have just been reciting, if that's all you knew and you were a prosecutor, would you have struck him? Would you have said, boy, I don't want any I don't want anybody on this jury who's got friends in the police department. Would you have struck him for that reason? Well, I can say, Your Honor, that's not the first time that's happened over the years in different, different trials that I've reviewed. How about you? I'm sorry? You, would you have gotten rid of him? Would you have said, I don't want any cop lovers on my jury? 
No, Your Honor, I would. No, I you would, wouldn't have. And no, and neither would I. No, sir. And that's we the have difficulty. No that we have no idea what this man looked like. We have no idea about his demeanor, his tone of voice. This could have been. There could have been very legitimate reasons for doing it. There could have been no legitimate reason for doing right. it. Right. But and nobody asked what the reason for doing it was. And therefore, we, no reasons were offered. So how, I don't know the answer to this at all. But how, how is this supposed to work? A, a uh, defense attorney is at the, the jury selection. And he sees that the prosecutor doesn't challenge for peremptory or any other reason one black member. Or let's call it five. And then they start challenging black members. Obviously, he didn't, at the beginning, impose any Batson claim. He had no Batson claim. Well, you have five people who were right on the jury who were black. What claim could you make? You're and not- then after you begin to get suspicious, and start to make them. Now they do this thing called backstrike, and they get everybody off the jury. Well, I would, How is it supposed to work? I would, I, would, I would disagree that they would not have a batching claim to make when a first black is struck if they felt that there was evidence of, of that one in They don't one. Know. We, it, we, The rule is not you can't, uh, you, so, so, so long as you have some black on the jury, you can strike the rest. No, sir, the rule Any is. Any single person. That's correct. I'm speaking reality. That's why, that's why you don't have to wait for a pattern. If you, let's say you have an all-black jury. I, I still you, have a, 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 a curious to the answer to Justice Breyer's question. How does this work? When they go back and backstrike, at that point, can the defendant say, oh, well, I don't think you can backstrike this juror. Uh, you're doing it on the basis of race. They can go back and backstrike, but the defendant could say, I raise a Batson objection. I'm sorry, they can go back and backstrike? Yes, sir. And in this case, I mean, both I'm sides. Sorry, I've, they can go back and object to the backstriking, at well, the this backstrike, point, and the state would say, "Well, here's the reasons we're backstriking her." The backstrike is, is just when is the ex- when is the challenge exercised? In and of itself, you can't say it's racial or not. It's it's a challenge. That wasn't. There's another question. problem here. Can after the backstrike of the first black juror who had been accepted, can they thereafter uh, uh, renew objections to jurors two and three? who were accepted on the assumption that there would be no racial I think under the miller the related decisions, yes, because that would be part of the totality of the circumstances. You may have a practical problem because — But it wasn't done here, and that was, that was the point that you made. Yes. yes. When the third — when the black backstrike of Brooks was made, they could have gone back for Hawkins and the other, but they didn't. That, 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 and that could have been argue, uh, evidence for them to make their prima facie case. But no, I, I'm as a sorry, you're, you're, there's some ambiguity in your answer. Miller L. says, yeah, others who were struck can be considered as part of the totality. My question is, can they go back and, and object not only to the backstruck juror, but as Justice Stevens points out, to the others who weren't objected to, perhaps because there wasn't a black person on the jury? To give you a yes or no answer, yes. The practical problem with that is those two jurors, having previously been excused, could be on their way to their office or back to their home if the, if the backstrike. Yeah, but the prosecutor is still there. You can ask the prosecutor, uh, why did you strike that juror? Yes, you could. Yes, you could. And then you've got a practical problem. What if it doesn't pass muster? That's the reason for the contemporaneous objection rule. Can I ask you one other question? You're the only one who will know the answer to this, too. I, I noticed in looking at the opinion of the Louisiana Supreme Court, that they start out by saying, we have conducted another review of the voir dire transcript 
and find nothing there to disparage the, the Batson claim. And in reading that opinion in several places, they refer to their having gone back and read the whole transcript themselves. And then they have two full pages, or one and a half anyway, where they seem to be talking about what happened in a pretrial conference, and they refer to that, our review uncovered a factor favorable to the State's use of a peremptory challenge. So they went back and found a factor favorable, too. Now, what does that factor argue to them in the brief? You remember that? I wrote the brief, Your Honor, but I, I don't remember. I thought that's what I might know. I don't remember. Uh, <laughs> so, but my thought is, in reading it, it seems as if they're not, and I was thinking about a judge can't think of everything. But if they're going to think of not beyond what the briefs tell them, they ought to think of it for both sides and not just for one side. <laughs> and that would be at odds with Justice Scalia's comment about um, looking at the record and saying, oh, here's another reason that the prosecutor didn't articulate. Similarly, Your Honors, in reference to the Thomas Hawkins being struck with no objection, there was uh, Greg Scott was a black juror, a, a peremptory struck by the state, again with no objection. And if you want to talk about, if we're talking about two or five here, um, little weight should be given to the exercise of those of those two. Greg Scott, again, like the other juror, I don't think was going, to, was going to survive the challenge by the defense. His wife was a victim of a carjacking, and he said that if he was a defendant and he was innocent, he would testify. He would need to testify. And in this case, uh, the defendant did not testify at either phase of the, of the proceedings. Mr. Boudreaux, I'd like to ask you a question before you finish. It's, it's not uh, put in issue in this case, but we, we are told that, that African Americans are 20 percent of the population of Jefferson Parish, but they were less than 11 percent of the people summoned for jury duty. Is that typical? Is that? Um, certainly pre-Katrina, Your Honor, yes. The, the summonses go out based on public records, driver's license, voter registrations. That's, that's, that's basically a random. So to say those numbers would not surprise me. But, but that, because it, it's almost uh, uh, half of what you would expect. Yes. And, that, and that's going to vary, you, you know, from venare to venare um, on any given day. Thank you. In a minute or two I have left, Your Honors, I would just, just uh, remind the Court, urge the Court to consider its recent opinion last June in UTEC dealing with the uh, deference due to the trial court in these types of proceedings. That was a habeas case, but the opinion says it would apply on direct review. And according to the trial court, the deference having been present and not just relying on a cold record, that the Louisiana Supreme Court's ruling should be affirmed. Do you think the deference in UTEC, which is a death-qualified juror, yes, sir. Uh, should be any greater than um, in, in a Batson case where we have the sensitive issue of, of racial discrimination? I'm not sure I understood the question, Your Honor. No, well, whether was the issue UTEC in UTEC. was UTEC. a death-qualified juror, and, and this yes. is a Batson case. Right. And, uh, and in, because of our concerns uh, in, in, in the Batson area, do you think we're entitled to have a, a different standard of deference for the trial court. I, mean, I, I think you No, because you're still I, dealing with, we haven't with discussed the demeanor of a fact finder. Uh, obviously, there's some differences in UTEC being habeas and Witherspoon, but the similarities, I think, are enough that this, the, the, the degree of deference uh, has to still be there, although this, there's a statutory uh, deference in a habeas. 
Thank you, Mr. Boudreau. Uh, Mr. Bright, you have three minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. If I could just say, first of all, about this backstrike, because what we see here is after Elaine Scott is struck, that's state number six, the very next peremptory strike by the state, number seven, is to go back and bite a backstrike, Jeffrey Brooks. Now, notice that with regard to the other four backstrikes used, two by the prosecution and two by the defense, it's at the very end of the process. It's literally when they're down to one juror. Williams says, do we have 11 jurors? And then he backstrikes. The defense says, are, is this my 11th strike? Backstrike. Williams then, are we back to 11? So these, the only way the backstrike makes sense, really, when you think about it, is to look at the whole jury and then go back and call out the ones based on a comparison. But once Brooks had kept them from striking, Mr. Scott, who, as Mr. Boudreau pointed out, his wife was robbed at gunpoint, said he would testify if he were a defendant in a case and, and was innocent. And then, as, Chief, as uh, Justice Stevens pointed out, uh, uh, Hawkins, who was a grown children, engineer, friends in the police department, these two are not struck. But then once Elaine Scott is struck, the third black, and the Batson challenge is made, we don't have any use for Jeffrey Brooks anymore, so he's... The, the backstrike is, is used in that way. And I think, again, when you look at all the relevant circumstances, it's pretty clear what was going on here with the acceptance of Brooks at the start and the backstrike. Do, uh, do you agree with your friend on the other side that you could have objected uh, both to the backstruck juror and to the jurors to whom you didn't, with respect to whom you did not object because there was the, the juror that was later backstruck on the jury? I, I think yes. The answer to that is yes, and I think if the defense had, we'd be talking about four jurors here today instead of two. But it doesn't diminish from the, what the court in, uh, in Miller I'll call the numbers, the, the fact that it's unlikely to uh, be by chance that all five, all five African Americans are struck in this case. Yes, and, and although you could have made an objection, as I understand your opponent, he very uh, uh, helpfully said, but they probably would have left the courthouse. And they, they would. So right. What, so what could you? So have they're done? gone. Yeah. And so if the objection had been overruled, uh, well, the objection would have sustained. The objection would have afforded the state an opportunity to present the. Uh, if there was one, the non-racial reason that they struck the juror. But the reason for doing that would be to have the judge not allow the strike and to put that juror in the box, and the juror's gone now. So that, as a practical matter, uh, is not going to work. There's no procedure. Well, the other reason to do it would be pr to preserve your right on appeal to object to those jurors. But there, there's no procedure rule in, in Louisiana that says you have to do that. Uh, it might have been a stronger case if they had to it. No, but there would be a rule here that, that, uh, that we're, we're, we're not going to uh, 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 postulate the worst reason for a prosecutorial strike rather than a good reason when you haven't given the prosecution an opportunity to, to set forth a good reason. But if I may answer, that, that only goes, though, the only two jurors on the reasons that are before the court are, are Jeffrey Brooks and Lane Scott. But the fact that the prosecutor struck all five, and as Justice Souter points out, you wouldn't have made this argument, I, I don't think, this O.J. Simpson argument, not only uh, depending on the race of the defendant, but if there had been black people on that jury. This is an argument that resonates with an all-white jury. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Bright. The case is submitted.